they trapped me in the first service. My mic wasn't working every time I moved. It crackled, so I had to stay right here in this cage known as the pulpit. So hopefully I can be a little bit more free range this time. But I'm blessed to be here. Thank, thankful for our pastor who has confidence in me when he's out to allow me to have the opportunity to fill the pulpit. I started Monday with 72 pages of notes. I got it down to eight pages, and my wife reminded me last night, said, you do have a time limit. <laughs> so, with that said, let's pray. Father God in heaven, we come before you, Lord Jesus, first and foremost, desiring for you to be glorified in this place. Father, may I decrease and may you increase. May I hide behind the cross. Not my words, but your words, Father. Father. Father, may we leave changed because we opened your word today. Your Holy Spirit dealt with us as followers of Christ and as people who are enemies of the cross. Father, may those who are still enemies of the cross come into repentance today, come before you with repentance today, asking, Father God, for you to become their Lord and Savior. Father, for those who have followed you for many, many years, as I've learned from this passage this week, may we all learn more about what it means to follow you. Father, may you receive all the glory, all the honor, and all the praise for everything that's going to take place in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. About a month ago, I realized that I'm getting old. And some of you say, well, you're in your mid-40s, and that's not old. Well, a month ago, I have a 16-year-old daughter now that we're teaching how to drive, and I've always been told that if you didn't have gray hair before your kids started driving, then you definitely will have gray hair after your kids start driving, and that you're officially old when you have that first driver's license in the house. So therefore, under those standards, I am officially becoming old, though I don't believe that I'm that old. But one of the things I've learned since my sweet Abigail, Nicole Zemai's firstborn child, received that driver's license, is they watch your example. For example, I have a habit of getting the car and drive. I mean, getting in the car, starting it, pulling it out of the driveway, and on the way out of the subdivision, putting my seatbelt on. Daddy, you know that you don't let us start leave out of the driveway without our seatbelt on. Don't you think you should put your seatbelt on? Or she's learned some of the rules of the road, like you're supposed to come to a complete stop at a stop sign, which means wait for a full three seconds before you proceed. Daddy, you ran that stop sign. I did not. Daddy, you didn't wait three seconds, and the wheels were still moving when you pulled up to it. Uh, probably the biggest lesson about my driving versus my sweet wife's driving was, Daddy, Mama's going to teach me how to drive. I said, why? Well, I want to learn how to safely drive. <laughs> Man, I'm striking out all over the place. In a 55, doing 60. Daddy, you're speeding. No, I'm not. I've been told my whole life by friends in law enforcement, they give you five miles. Not a good lesson to teach your teenage daughter. I said, but then I learned my lesson when I was in seminary, and I drove from here, and I was running late to class, and I hit St. James Parish. I hit that magic bridge where they normally sit, and I was doing 72 miles an hour, and the officer said, you're speeding. I said, really, how fast was I going? He said, 72. I said, that's not speeding. He said, I'm giving you a ticket. It is. <laughs> Why do I say all that? I think the passage that we're going to look at today is exactly what Jesus is dealing with with the Pharisees and Sadducees, or with, with the Pharisees and the scribes. The Pharisees and scribes are telling the people what to do and what's right to do, but they're not doing it themselves. Anybody been there before? As I've shared, I've been a parent now for 16 years. I've learned a lot. I've been a student pastor and in ministry as associate pastor and so forth and so on for many other years 
going on 20, 26, I think. So it's been, it's been a fun ride, but one of the things that I've always attempted to do is whatever I tell students, whatever I tell my children, I try to do, and I don't always live up to it. And kids are, say the darndest things, and they always seem to point out when you're not doing what you say you do. Well, the religious leaders of the day are no different about saying what to do but then not doing it with the right motives or doing it with the right attitude or just downright not doing the right thing at all. And our passage today is Matthew chapter 23. Most pastors that preach this passage do it over about a seven-week period. I'm going to do it all in one summation for us today. So, we're, so I guess after my driving illustration, you need to buckle up, put your trade tables in the upright position, and hold on because we're about to go. But you see, chapter 23 is an extended controversy that comes as a result of chapters 21 and 22. And they revealed beyond any doubt that the religious establishment will not lead the people of Israel in repentance and acceptance of Jesus' invitation to the kingdom of heaven. They have their way, and Jesus' way and God's way is wrong. Anybody know somebody like that? You may not. Praise God if you don't. My prayer is, as I study this passage, that I would be a person of my word and that everywhere I go, people would see Christ and that he would see my life preaching Christ as much as my words are preaching Christ. The passage in Matthew chapter 23 can be broken down into three sections that we will look at. Verses 1 through 12, warning against imitating the Jewish leaders. Then a series of woes crying their hypocrisy, verses 13 through 36. And then we conclude with Jesus' grief and prediction of the resulting coming judgment. The series of woes follow closely, as we mentioned a moment ago, from the parables of chapter 21 and 22. That revealed the liability of these religious leaders for not leading the nation of Israel in repentance with the arrival of the kingdom of heaven and from the debates found in the latter part of chapter 22 in which they attempt to entrap Jesus. So what does Jesus do when he gets entrapped? He warns the crowd and his disciples of the false leadership of the Pharisees and the scribes found in our text today. And he alerts them not to follow their example. But he also directs the woes against them directly to confront them with their failed responsibility as leaders and with its consequences because of their deadly false leadership. Jesus pronounces severe judgment on them in the latter part of the chapter. We're going to look at it in three parts. As I mentioned, I'm going to give you a simpler phrases rather than the big lengthy things I gave you a moment ago. We're going to look at the warning. We're going to look at the declaration, and then we're going to look at the condemnation. All found in chapter 23 of Matthew. Jesus first addresses the crowd and his disciples and warns them of the false leadership that the teachers of the law and the Pharisees have given to warn them not to follow their example. Read with me. Then Jesus spoke to the disciples, to the crowd and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves... In the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you do observe, but do not do according to their deeds. For they say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on the shoulders of men, but they themselves are unwilling to move them, to move them with so much as a finger. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men. For the broaden of their phylacteries and the lengthen, lengthen the tassel of their garments. They love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by men. But do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher and you are all brothers. Do not... 
call anyone on, the, on earth your father. The one is your father. He is who is in heaven. <coughs> Do not be called leaders or master. For one is your leader or master, that is Christ. But the greatest among you shall be servants. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. Totally different way of thinking than the world has for us today. The one who exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. So we see in verse 2, Jesus addresses the scribes and the Pharisees. Some may even say uh, teachers of the law. The, The scribes here are the interpretive experts of the Torah or the law. So then what are the Pharisees? We always hear that they're the religious leaders, but what are they exactly? They're the theological experts. So basically the scribes tell and translate what the law says for the Pharisees, and then the Pharisees take the theological doctrinal view and present it to the people. I'm going to start with what I ended the first service with. This is the word of God. We take our do's and don'ts from it, not from man. We don't take it from his interpretation. We take it as the word of God is written, not what Marvin says, not what you say, but what the word of God says. Says the scribes in Matthew 23 2 evidently belong to some part of the Pharisaical sect because the Lord linked them with the Pharisees. So, insofar as much as the scribes taught or commanded what was, what was in the Mosaic law, they were to be honored and obeyed. Let me say that one more time. And as far as the scribes taught or commanded what was actually in the Mosaic law, whatever the preacher teaches that is in the word of God, is to be obeyed as it is written. Not your own personal interpretation of what is in the word, or their own interpretation. They, will be, they were to be honored and obeyed. They had once been true expositors of the law, but through many years, they had added to the law a large number of useless traditions, glosses, evasions, injunctions, and just downright wrong interpretations. That is what is before them. That is what Jesus is accusing them of. The word of God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It is to rebuke and to help us and to guide us. It is not to be added to as Revelation says. Now he warned his listeners not only to draw the line between God's word and man's tradition, but also to avoid the hypocrisy of the scribes and Pharisees of their teachings and the things that they've done. So what exactly does verses 1 through 12 teach us about false leaders? I'm going to go through these rather quickly. If you're taking notes, I will be happy to share my notes with you if you don't get them. But most of them all begin this way. False leaders lack. And there's one, two, three, four, five. There's five of them, so if you put false leaders lack and then dot, 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 I'm going to give you number one, number two, number three, number four, and number five. First of all, in verse two, we see that they lack authority. Jesus warns the crowds and the disciples about the burden that the teachers of the law and the Pharisees have imposed on them because of their authoritative position in the synagogue. Sinful people resist God's truth because it is a rebuke to them, and they just as naturally turn to false religions and philosophies because those systems in one way or another approve or indulge their wicked inclinations and desires. Verse 3 shows us that false leaders lack integrity. Read with me. Therefore, that they tell you to observe, but they do not do according to their deeds, for they say things... And do not do them. Guess one phrase you could use there is talk is cheap. Another phrase that I grew up hearing that you may also have heard was anybody want to take a guess? Do as I say and not as I do. That is a poor philosophy to live by. I want you to spend time in the Word of God daily. And I spend time in it on Sundays only. 
and we wonder why we've lost a generation of the church because we told them to do as I say and not as I do. We have got to get back to being a person's of integrity because false leaders lacked integrity. To be a true leader in your family, to be a true leader in the Christian life, to be a true leader in the church, we must have integrity. We must come to things and we must have biblical authority and we must come to them under the authority of God, not our own authority. Any and all accurate interpretation of Scripture is to be obeyed. In Matthew chapter 6, part of the Sermon on the Mount, we will refer back and forth between 23 to chapter 6 of Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount, and then the warnings. And it's interesting that Jesus began his ministry, and right before he goes to the cross, he began his ministry with the blessings and the Sermon on the Mount, and right before he goes to the cross, he ends it with the warnings. And why does he do that? Because he wants us as followers of Christ to understand what it is to be a follower of Christ and the way to live our life. Here, here in Matthew 6, 2, he, po- here he points to specific issues in which the Pharisees preach one value but do not practice it themselves. This is a form of hypocrisy. The false leaders in verse 4 lack sympathy. They not only are absurd and hypocrites but are loveless and uncaring. I've said it, and I probably use this sermon, I mean, this illustration of, of the text in the Gospels, this account in the Gospels. Anytime that I preach, I've said it in the students numerous times, I've said it here numerous times, but think about the woman who was caught in adultery. Number one, the text says that she was caught in the very act of adultery, but yet there was no men presented to Jesus, just the woman. Chew on that for a minute. But that's not the point of the text here. It says that they were loveless. I want you to think about what Jesus did in that account. He bent down and he wrote on the ground. They pleaded their case with him. He stood up and said, Ye who is without the first stone, I mean, he who is without sin, cast the first stone. Jesus knelt down again. And one by one, they walked away, dropping their rocks. Let that set in for a minute. Then Jesus stands up in loving, graceful, merciful way. Looks at the woman and says, where are your accusers? And to sum it up, they're gone. Jesus is the only one that has the right to condemn her, and what does he say? They're gone, and they do not condemn you, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now, she was caught in the very act of sin, church, and I'm not saying that we need to love sin, but I'm saying that we need to have the eyes of Jesus and love people, and to walk with them through that sin that's in their life so that they can get in a right relationship with Jesus Christ. Not say, oh, well, they're too far gone. God's the judge of that, not us. We need to be sympathetic toward the lost. We need to be sympathetic toward our brothers and sisters in Christ. Every one of us has a bad day. Jesus now warns against, the, uh, against imitating their performance of good works for you human honor of reward. In other words, he pursues the theme that is found in Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 18. I'm not going to read all that. I encourage you to go back and look at that text this week or this afternoon. Here is an example. He involves dress, position, and greetings. The admiration of men. These Jewish leaders paraded themselves around in piety by enlarging the lengths and widths of their telephone and the zith which they wore. Let me give you this. The the phylacteries that my translation used, the telephones, is a small leather cubical case containing passages of Scripture written on them. While the Pharisees and the scribes had the biggest, most gaudiest piece of cube for the things so that everybody knew that they were holier than thou. Then the tassels 
was a reminder and it showed how much they obeyed God and how they remembered constantly to obey God. But then why is Jesus there saying that you righteous people, you brood of vipers, why does he tell them that then? I'll tell you. Because they were in it all for themselves and not for him. They had a worldly mindset and not a kingdom mindset. They were not interested in the things of God. They were interested in building their own private kingdoms. Which leads us to our next thing. They wanted the advancement of men. These leaders enjoyed honor, seats at banquets and in synagogues. And then adoration of men. They loved to be greeted with their titles that underline their status. I like Marvin. Marvin's a good name. It's a good greeting. It's my name. I don't need anything else in front of it. I don't need anything else behind it. Just if you want to have a conversation with me, I want to be intimate and personal with you. I'm going to call you by your first name. I invite you to call me by my first name. And it's been a hard thing for parents to understand because I understand the respect because I, as I mentioned a moment ago, I am a parent myself and I want my kids to respect. But I want them to be on a personal level with me. So if they want to call me Marvin, then that's a sign of respect. And they call me the other names in the book, then you can correct them because that's a sign of disrespect. But I have no problem with not being known as Rever the Reverend Wright Marvin Reed. Some of you will get that later. False leaders lack spirituality. Verse 5, everything is done outward show rather than from the heart for fleshly gratification of ego rather than selfless service to God. Remember back to Matthew chapter 6, verses, verse 1. <clears throat> Practicing their righteousness before men to be noticed. So they would stand up in the middle of God and everybody, and they would pray these elaborate prayers in verse 5 just to be seen. Or when they were fasting, hey guys, just want you to know I'm fasting this week. I'm fasting for our pastor this week. Because he needs to know, and all y'all need to know, how holy I am. No. <laughs> what does the word say? The things you do in secret, the Father sees in secret, and he answers. We don't need a flaw in our Jesus. We need to live our Jesus. Let me say that one more time. We don't need a flaw in our Jesus. We need to live our Jesus. We don't need to show, tell people how righteous we are. We need to show them by the way we live how righteous we are. We need to love people. We need to love God with everything we are and forget the titles, forget who, who, that we read the Bible through and through and once a year. I read it once, once all the way from cover to cover and it was in seminary because it was for a grade. You said, wait, you're, in, you're a preacher and you don't read the Bible through every year? No. I want to dive into the Word and I want to know what the Word says. And if I try to cram four or five chapters in a day, my brain just does not work that way. Um, like I said before, I was trapped behind this pulpit in the first service. I know that sounds really bad, but I should have taken a double dose of my ADD medicine because it was very difficult for me just to stay there. So reading three or four chapters a day, that's just not me. Now, Red asked me earlier, he said, you must really have something for these people. You studied all week. 39 verses took me all week to decipher. 72 pages took me all week to decipher. Why? And why do I tell you this? It's not to bring me honor, not to say, look at me. It's to say, when you dive into the Word, dive into the Word for you and let God work. When you, dive into, when you want to do something for God, do what you want to do for God and let God work. Nobody else needs to know. And you don't have to read the Bible through in a whole year just to prove your Christianity. You need to be reading the Bible daily. Because it's almost like this. You have a relationship. And you say you have a close relationship. But what if you never talk to that person? What if you never write that person? How much of a relationship do you have? We say we have a relationship with Christ. How often do you talk with Christ? How often do you read his word? How often do you study his word? That proves our relationship with Jesus. Out of the heart, the man speaks. Sorry, I got away from my notes for a moment. False leaders lack humility, verses 6 through 8. They, they glorified in being given a place of prestige and eminence. 
It was the egocentric spirit that led James and John to ask, to ask their mother to request that Jesus, that they be appointed to the seat of the, his right or to his left in Matthew 20, 21, and 20. Matthew 20, 20, and 21. The religious leaders wanted the best places at the feast and the most important seat in the synagogue. Now think about this. We have this big hoorah here. And we have somebody that's coming as our guest speaker. And you want to be recognized. And you go and you step down and you walk and you sit at the center table. Then somebody from our hospitality committee has to come over and say, I'm sorry, Marvin. That seat's not for you. That's for our guest speaker. How do I feel? How do you feel? You can put yourself in my place. Embarrassed. Why did I do it? Because I want everybody to know that Marvin's here. That was the attitude of the Pharisees and Sadducees that day. Is we want to make a presence and we want our presence to be known. So therefore, we're going to take the seat of honor wherever it is. In, in biblical times, it was at the center of the table. But how embarrassed are you? How embarrassed am I? when the hostess has to come and ask me to move. How much better would you feel or I feel if I sat at the lowliest place, the back seat, the back seat, the back pew, and then, then somebody come and say, hey, why don't you come and sit here? You're our honored guest tonight. See the difference? I pray that you do. So, we had the warning. Now we have the declaration. Contrary to the proud and astigious practices of the scribes and Pharisees, Jesus declared true leaders, true spiritual leaders are to avoid elevated titles and be willing to accept lowly places. Verses 9 and 10, true leaders avoid elevated titles. Godly spiritual leaders are to shun prestigious titles. The best goal of the Christian is to strive for the intimacy that simply makes addressing one another on a first-name basis natural. I mentioned it earlier. I shared with you, I like to be known as Marvin. When I go to a restaurant, I intentionally call my waiter or waitress, if they have their name tag on, by their name. Why? makes it more intimate. It acts like it shows. It doesn't just act like, but it shows that I care about them. Sometimes, spirit-led, we will ask, depending on what group of guys I'm with or with my family, hey, can we pray for you today? Do that at lunch today and see what waitress or waiter does and looks at you like, are you serious? Yeah, we're about to ask the blessing on our meal, and we want to pray for you, whatever their name is. But call them by name. Why? Because it's more intimate. Why do I call students? If you ever notice, if I'm talking to a child in our children's ministry, I will get down like this. To see them eyeball to eyeball. And I don't mean to be any rude to anybody in the congregation, but if you come up to me and I'm spending time with this child, I'm going to ask you to wait. Whether you're 60, whether you're a teenager, whoever you are, that child has my undivided attention and that's showing them that I care about them. It's not to be rude or disrespectful or to say that you don't have a place, but try that sometime with a child. See their reaction. Watch them light up because you get down on their level and you call them by name. True leaders accept lowly service. Godly spiritual leaders are willing to accept lowly service in the Lord's name for following their Lord's example. Jesus concludes his section in Matthew 20 that we referred to a moment ago by recalling back to a saying that earlier corrected the disciples' inappropriate concerns for positions. And this is what he said. Verse 28, And to give his life as ransom for many. What's the first part of that? Summed up, it says this. His mission on earth was not to be served, but to serve. So he said, and to give his life up as ransom many. So the highest priority of a disciple of Christ is to be a servant leader. Our highest priority, our highest calling is to serve others. The world teaches this. Excuse me. Let's go to, uh, let's look at the text in 23, 11 first. It says this, but the greatest among you shall be your servant. The greatest, per the greatest person in God's sight is not the one with the most degrees or titles or rewards, but the one who serves in genuine humility as a selfless servant. The greatest among you 
will be your servant, verse 11 of chapter 23 says. The world teaches this, though. The one who exalts himself is the one who gets, his, gets ahead. The one who humbles himself is the one who loses out and gets pushed aside, looking out for number one as the accepted, accepted principle for success by the world's standards. But what does Christ say here in verse 11 and verse 12? They must arrange their lives with the ambition to give themselves for the benefit of others. That's how we make people know who Jesus is, is by giving ourselves, giving of our time, giving of our energies, giving who we are, not seeking worldly positions, even though they're nice, but seeking godly positions of humility. That's totally contradictory to the world. That's just the introduction. The condemnation is found in verses 13 through 36, and we're going to go. The first woe found in verse 13 and 14. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people, for you do not enter in yourself, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, and for pretense you make long prayers, therefore you receive greater condemnation. So let me break it down for you. Here's the woe. Face, failing to recognize Jesus' identity prevents others from doing so also. Failing to recognize Jesus as the Son of the living God, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, your Savior, and your Lord fails to allow others to see him the same way. The Pharisees and Sadducees were living for themselves, and their statues and things were for them, not for the glory of God. So what do we do? Here's our lesson to today. This is how it applies to us today. Be a signpost to the doorway of the kingdom. What's a signpost? You know that big flashing sign on a building? It says O-P-E-N. What does that tell you? Open. Thank you. Somebody said it. I'm going to thought back in the student ministry. You ask a question, they just stare at you. Um, open. You know what? A signpost is for the kingdom. We are opening our lives up so that people can see Jesus in us. So we open the gates of heaven for people to come and accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And the Pharisees were not doing that, and we are called to do that as the body of Christ. Verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much as a son of hell as you. Propagating extremism to entrap converts and error. They were showing people their way, not God's way. They made converts of themselves and just basically gave people a false sense of identity which doomed them to that much greater towards hell. So what do we do? We should make converts or we should share the gospel. We should make converts to the kingdom and not to ourselves. Not for our own personal vendetta or for our own personal group, but for the kingdom of God. Leaders within the kingdom of heaven are to point people only to Jesus and not our own selves. Number three, woe. Verses 16 through 22, woe to you blind guides who say, whoever swears by the temple that nothing that is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated. You fools and blind men. Which is more important? The gold of the temple or, that, or, the, or the temple that sanctified it? Verse 18. And whoever swears by an altar, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the offering on it is obligated. You blind men, verse 19 says. Which is more important? The offering on the or the altar that sacrifices or that sanctifies the offering. Verse 20. Therefore, whoever swears by the altar swears by both the altar and by everything on it. But whoever swears by the temple swears both by the temple and by him who dwells within it. Verse 22. Beautiful words. And whoever swears by heaven swears both 
by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 34 and 37, Jesus basically says, do not take an oath. Let your yes be yes and let your no be no. Christian, if we say yes to something, we need to follow through with it. If we say no with something, we need to be up front and just tell that person no. It makes your life a whole lot easier if you learn to say no. I only learned that in the last year or so. God is the truth. God is the God of truth and not lie. Titus 1 and 2 and Hebrews 6, 18. And his people are therefore to be people of truth. The most straightforward approach is the transparency of a life lived in the intimacy of a relationship with Jesus Christ. Fourth woe, verse 23 and 24. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law justice and mercy and faithfulness but these are the things you should have done without neglecting the other you blind guides you strain out the gnat and swallow a camel there was nothing wrong with the offering that they were giving the issue was their motive behind giving the offering they had looked at the law and found out what the minimum minimum they could give in the offering with the mint and the things that are mentioned there and not the greater first offerings of livestock and other things. So it wasn't that they weren't giving and they weren't tithing. It was the motive in which they were doing it. And that's why he says it is easier to strain a gnat than it is for a camel. So what's our lesson there? The woe is majoring on the minors of religious performance. Our lesson is major on the majors of the kingdom. This lesson... This lesson is crucial. They magnify the insignificant and minimize the essential. Number five. Verse 25 and 26. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup of the dish, but the inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish, so that the outside of it may become clean also. I shared this illustration. Actually, it's a true story. In, in the first service, and I want to share it with you. I had a seminary professor whose brother worked for Lifeway. He was known for never washing the inside of his coffee cup. He would come in the next day. If it was empty, he would go pour another cup. If he had some left in the, yesterday... He finished that off. and th- Yeah, uh-huh. His cup, from what my professor said, is as dark as this wood on this pulpit. We've all been there, right? Give you another thought. You go to someone's house and they offer you a drink and you take it. It's not a clear cup so you can't see through it. You drink and you drink and at the bottom there's some type of residue. You know that cup was not clean. How do you feel? I can't believe I just drank out of that cup. That's what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees and Sadducees. You look great on the outside, but your inside inside is just like that stained coffee cup or or that cup that you got to the bottom of and realized there was a residue and that cup was dirty that you're drinking out of. That's where Jesus doesn't want us. He wants us to come from the inside out. He wants to use us from the inside out. Out, out of the heart, the one speaks. Outwardly, the, the, the religious leaders appeared righteous, caring, and exemplary. But inwardly, they were ravenous wolves. It's easy to put on a show for people. Sixth woe. Creating, oops, sorry, fifth woe. The woe was failing to restrain impure motives of leadership. The lesson was to promote motives of for leadership ministry from the inside out. Six woe is similar, creating fake exterior of leadership identities, verses 27 and 28. Develop personal identity as a leader from the inside out. Verse 27 says this. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanliness. So you... Two outwardly appear righteous to men, 
but outwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, and this is the way he considered his eternal future. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. He wasn't worried about here. He was worried about his relationship on Jesus Christ and what his future entailed and his eternal destination entailed. And everything he did was for Christ. External purity should result in, from inward purity unless inward purity for, is first outward ceremonially. Cleanliness amounts to nothing. Unless inward purity is first, outward cleanliness amounts to nothing. Then finally, the seventh woe. Verses 29 through 32. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. For you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous. Verse 30. And say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in the shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. So fill up, verse 32, then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. Interesting thing here. If you read all the way to verse 39 of the passage that we're looking at, at the end of it, they're about to plot to kill Jesus because they don't like the words that are coming out of his mouth. He's the son of the living God. He's the one that is bringing the light into the world. He is the one that is carrying the message of God, the true repentance, the salvation. Everything that we have and everything we hope for is in him. And they are about to murder him. And they say we ain't nothing like the ones that were before us who killed the prophets. They are just like them, y'all. Here's our woe. Perpetuating godless institutional establishments rather than our lesson choose carefully the traditions you will represent there's nothing wrong with tradition unless it is not in line with this there's nothing wrong with tradition unless it becomes our god the only real way to honor a prophet is to obey him the only way to really obey to honor jesus in our life is to obey his word. So, verse 33 through 36, we have the summation of our woes. Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on the earth. From the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar, truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. So how do we sum it up? Stifling righteous voices of God so that ours is louder. Stifling the righteous voice of God so that ours is louder. So what should we do? What is our lesson? What is Jesus trying to say? Listen to God's other messengers because leadership has strict condemnation. In John eight forty four, they were venomous breed, indeed true children of the old serpent and the devil. What an assessment of character Jesus makes of the Pharisees and the scribes. This recalls for us as leaders Jesus James's Equally chilling warning found in James chapter 3, verse 1. Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. So how do we say, how do we sum it up? What do we say after reading chapter 23 of Matthew? With Jesus going through the warning to the people, going through the declaration to the people, and then to the condemnation. Here's how I summed it up. God is God. Whatever he does is right by definition because he is both the source and the measure of what is right. Let me sum it up this way. 
It doesn't matter what Marvin believes. It only matters what the Word of God says. Let me say that again. It doesn't matter what Marvin believes. It only matters what the Word of God says. If my belief is not lined up with the Word of God, then I'm wrong. Period. Now let's do this. It doesn't matter, and you can fill your name in with my name, what blank believes, it only matters what the Word of God says. And if, if the Word of God says something different than what blank believes, then blank is wrong. Period. And that's the message that Jesus was trying to get across to the religious leaders of the day, to the Pharisees and scribes that he's confronting in Matthew chapter 23, that God is God and he is right, and you're wrong. And if it doesn't stand upon the word of God, and it doesn't stand upon the law and the prophets, then you're wrong, period, exclamation point. It's stopped, there's no debate, there's no argument. So the same holds true today. If it doesn't agree to the word of God, then it's wrong. That's one of the reasons I've encouraged the students a couple weeks ago to put their cell phones down and go get a copy of God's Word. I encourage you today that if you have a copy of God's Word, bring it. If you use a tablet or you use an iPad, or you use a Kindle reader, bring it, and don't believe the words that are coming out of my mouth, but read it for yourself from the Word of God. There's too many people that take things at face value. Know what you believe and know in whom you believed. I pray today that we are not the Pharisees and the Sadducees. I pray today that if somebody here that has been hurt by the church, heard what Jesus said to the Pharisees and Sadducees, and that you would reconcile your relationship with Jesus today. That if you have never been in a love relationship with Jesus Christ, that today would be the day of your salvation. That today, if you've had any of these attitudes of the Pharisees and Sadducees, and trust me, I did a lot of praying this week in preparation for this message. I told you in the beginning, 72 pages of notes, 39 verses of the chapter. I did a whole lot of praying and a whole lot of reflecting. So as we come to our time of invitation, as Brother Red comes, as I pray us into our time of invitation, I pray that today, whether you come to this altar or not, that you would do business with God. If you need, a, if you need to enter into a love relationship with Jesus Christ and you say, man, everything that you read today about the Pharisees and Sadducees is what I experienced in church. Well, you heard what Jesus had to say. Maybe you've never even heard the name of Jesus until today. Here's what I know about Jesus. He loves you. You're sinful. He died for you. And he, and he wants to be your Lord and Savior. Here's what I know about Jesus, church. He's waiting for us to be the light. So if there's anything in your life that's preventing you from being that light, from being you that true spiritual leader in somebody's life, then I pr pray today that you would make a decision and repent and commit your ways to his ways because his ways are not our ways and our ways are not his ways. Father God in heaven, we come before you now. Father, I pray and I lift up this time of challenge to you. I ask, oh Lord Jesus, I ask the Lord Jesus that you would move and that you would have your way in this place. We love you and then name of your son Jesus the Christ we pray amen let's all stand right now if you have a decision to make for Christ come forward Marvin will be here in the front if you just need prayer if you need to pray to the Lord and you want to come to the altar it's open now for you all to Jesus I surrender all to him I freely presence daily live I surrender all I surrender all all to thee my blessed Savior I surrender
you may be seated for our time of offering as the gentlemen come couple of things. Number one, I'll make myself available after the service. If you need to talk with me, Brother Red, or one of our deacons, we will be available to talk about having a relationship with Jesus Christ, first and foremost. Number two, pray for our pastor, him and Miss Wanda. We're in Georgia Friday night for a graduation. They were in Florida yesterday for a graduation, and they're driving back this morning to be with us tonight for a bi-monthly business meeting. I invite everybody to come and see what the Lord has planned for us and for the business of our church tonight at 5.30. So let's pray. Father God in heaven, we come before you. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this day. Father, as we take the tithes and offerings now, may you bless the gift, Father God. May you bless the giver, Father God. And may they do your work and your purpose, Father God. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.